0: It's great to have you back. Um, Those of you who are on the weekend, fantastic. I'm not going to talk about the weekend all the time. You'll be glad to hear. Uh, We don't want to create a sort of two-tier system here, but we do want to sort of make sure that the fire spreads. So if you weren't on the weekend, chat to someone who was, and hopefully we'll be able to sort of share and infill some of those things that happened. And I'm not going to keep saying Bishop's Ruth teaching was amazing. We'll reference that as we go along, but it was amazing, and I do encourage you when we give you the opportunity to catch up because it's really worth catching up on. And I really want to introduce this new series to you. I'd say in childhood there were two passages of scripture that by the age of about nine or ten, I come from a Christian family, by the age of about nine or ten, I could probably relay back to you pretty well. One was the parable of the sower. And the other one was the parable of what I knew to be the prodigal son. They were the two pieces of scripture, the two stories that I could constantly recount relatively easily. And I think probably for many of us in the room, you'd associate it with that idea of like, going, oh, yeah, those stories, are, you know, if I was asked for a Bible story, I'd probably talk about the sower or the prodigal son. And, and I guess having been a Christian now for quite a long time, and a priest even now for a really quite a long time, you, know, you, can, you can kind of find yourselves with these kind of classics and treat them with a little bit of sort of snobbery of like, oh yeah, yeah, the prodigal son, yeah, great, done that kind of thing. Right, that's kind of like Bible 101. Let's move on to some really complicated texts and Leviticus or Numbers and kind of really work out what this all means. But, but, but I want to kind of arrest that thought for a moment and say, what if we'd missed something? Now, what if we'd missed something really, really fundamental that Jesus was trying to tell his audience in the first century that because of our culture and kind of our worldview, we've missed it? What if actually going back into the story of the prodigal son was the most important thing we could ever do because, because we've kind of walked past some kind of amazing open door that we never even noticed? And that's what I want to propose to you as we enter into this series of teaching, what we're calling the, the parable of the running father. Uh, We're going to spend, I think, nearly eight weeks working around this particular parable. Some of you are going to be groaning inside right now, going, really? Eight weeks doing the same story? But we just think that there's so much richness in this that, that it could change your life, and it could change the life of the church. I really want you to lean in. And what we want to do is also be better at handling Scripture. It sounds kind of like, it sounds like a driving test, doesn't it? I want you to be better at handling scripture. But, you know, I realize, again, because of our devices, and maybe, you know, I'm rebelling against my kind of 90s flavor Christianity, where it was all like, yeah, kind of know that verse. Yeah, great. I'm just going to sit back and kind of let it wash over me. That you know, I, I want you to kind of sort of change flow. You know, I, I know that it's easy to kind of rebel against the I'm really going to get into the word of the Lord because that feels kind of a little heavy but actually I'm just going back to that place of going that's not heavy that's light that's where I should be rooted and actually I want us all here to focus in this year as Tim and and Louie and the rest of the team do on on actually how do I how do I get discipled you know, how do I actually, how does my faith transform me and transform my community? And it's only going to do that if we really invest heavily in understanding the Bible and reading for it for all it's worth. So we've, we've hopefully got Bibles in our hands. And I just want to say to you, you know, oh goodness, I think about some of the things I've said over the years, you know, I just want you to press into scripture for its own sake and just go, actually, this is a privilege. Let's read it well. And with that in mind, I'd love us just to read two verses out loud together. And again, it's probably been a long time since this has happened in many of our lives. But uh, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. The first thing I want you to notice is the titling in the New Testament NIV version. If, you, if you've got one open, even on your device, there might be titling. It says there, the parable of the lost sheep. And we're going to read together uh, just verses Um, we're going to read together verses, sorry, the parable of the lost sheep, chapter 15, and then you see the parable of the lost coin, and then you see the parable of the lost son, and we're going to be starting there, verse 11 and verse 12, reading them out loud together after three, one, two, three. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property equally between them. I'm going to read that one more time that was great you were great in great unison I was loving that right let's try that Jesus continued there was a man who had two sons the young one said to his father father give me my share of the estate so he divided his, his property between them now, Luke chapter 9 to 19 is what we know to be called the travel narrative. Now, what that means is that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to ultimately die for our sake. And so Jesus is leaving, if you like, the safety of, the, of, of Galilee and Nazareth, his hometown, his homeland, the region where he received great kind of acclaim a and acceptance in many ways, apart from maybe in Nazareth. But there was a large group of people we know, 4,000 people, 5,000 people were listening to his teaching. People were readily receiving his teaching but here he's on his way to Jerusalem and he knows what's coming and I'm not sure about you but you know maybe if you had like a a last will and testament to offer that's when you kind of put in all the important stuff. Psychologists always say that the most important thing that people say is the last thing they say before they leave the room. You spend sort of 50 minutes listening to someone going on and on and on and in the last five minutes they finally say what they've come there to say and then they kind of quickly get out the door. Now, think about Jesus' ministry, he shared all sorts of really significant things, but here on the travel narrative, it's like a distillation of some of the most important teaching that he's going to offer people, and, and, and really significant moments in his teaching which, which we're going to kind of press into and plug into. So I want you to kind of turn the volume up in terms of saying, ah, oh, this is the travel narrative, this must be really, really important, this is what Jesus really wanted to impart to his disciples, you know, before he died and within the travel narrative here particularly in Luke chapter 15 as we've already titled out there are a trip there's a triplet of teaching and they're titled here as we've already said the parable of the lost sheep the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost son what do you notice about that triplet of teaching It's all about being lost, isn't it? Thank you. It's all about being lost. The focus is all on what's been lost. The sheep has been lost, the coin has been lost, and the sun has been lost. Are you feeling pretty depressed about this piece of teaching right now? Because it's like it seems to be about lost things. I, I grew up in a wonderful church, but had you know a very strong interpretation on these things, and, and, and the inference was don't get lost. You know, from being a young child, I, you know, I felt this sort of pressure not to get lost. You know, don't be the prodigal. Just don't. Don't go there. Don't be the lost sheep. You know, don't be the lost coin. I'm not sure how that's possible, but don't be that thing. You know, just don't get lost. It would be really good for you if you just didn't get lost. And I wonder if many of us have been sort of, you know, imbibed that teaching. Oh, yeah, I, I mustn't get lost. And then we think about moments in our life when we've been lost to God and, and kind of we feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel otherness. We're like, oh my goodness, I got so lost. I got so lost. You know, my story is a prodigal story. I got lost. I got found again. Hallelujah. But you know, I still think about being lost, and that's sort of imprinted in my spirit. Oh, I got lost. I'm the prodigal son. But, you know, in the in, in Middle Eastern culture, in in this period, they had completely different titling for these texts. Don't you find that remarkable? The titles that they use for these texts are not the titles that we use for these texts. It might be helpful to know that, that the Hebrew is written in one single document. The Greek, of which this is a part, was written in one single text. There weren't headings and paragraph breaks or loads and loads of punctuation. It was just solid text, solid Greek text, solid Hebrew text in the Old Testament, solid Greek text in the New Testament. So someone came along later and said, ah, yes, this must be a story about lost things. We'll title it neatly. That would be great. Three things, lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. But in the Middle East, there were different titles. And the titles of these three stories were The Good Shepherd, The Good Woman, and The Running Father. Completely different titles. The Good Shepherd, you've probably heard that phrase used, but The Good Woman, who's heard that used? I think that's a great title for a story. And then the running father who's heard that used you know they're alien to us in many ways yeah we can say oh well Jesus is the good shepherd but the good woman and the running father are these bible stories that you know that you could kind of hang your coat on I'm not sure because you see in the west we've often become transfixed with what the bible is saying about us what's the bible telling me about me I want to know what the Bible's saying about me in my life and how I can get fixed and how I can get found and how I can get sorted out you know, I read the Bible through a relatively narcissistic lens. And, and, I, and I feel like our culture does the same. Oh, you know, flick a verse and find out your future kind of thing. That's, that's the worst of it, maybe. Who's not, uh, was it just me? Um, you know, we're tempted, aren't we, to kind of, you know, ask God, you know, God, what are you saying to me today? You know, what's the magic verse of my life? You know, everything becomes self-orientated. But we've become transfixed about what the Bible says about us, but we need to be asking, does the Bible say about God? Bishop Ruth, ting, pointed out in her amazing teaching on the weekend in Exodus, Moses was asking, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Exodus 3, 11, and 12. And God said, I will be with you. And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you were to say to the Israelites. The I am has sent me to you. Now, God's saying, Moses, it's not about you, it's about me. Why are, you, why, why are we asking this question? Who am I that I should go to them? That's irrelevant, who you are. What's important is who I am. And actually, God only defines himself and references himself in himself. I am the I am. I'm the I am of God. Like, I don't need any qualification. I am God what more do you need and in this passage you know we're lost in this world of lostness around this prodigal son thinking ah I know what this story is all about ah this story is about not getting lost but what if it's not about the prodigal son what if it's actually about the running father we're always asking who am I but we should be asking, who are you? Who are you, God? And as I said, you might think it's strange that we dedicated several weeks to the same passage, especially one as familiar as this, but, but I think we've missed, it. we've missed it. We've missed a fundamental piece of teaching about the nature of who God is, teaching that could completely revolutionize our faith and our life. And I want to make two very, very simple points today, which I hope that you will all walk away with absolute clarity over. And the, the first is this the parable begins with these simple words Jesus continued. Have a look in your Bible just to confirm that I'm telling you the truth. Verse 11, two words Jesus continued. My first point is that the beginning is not the beginning. If you you see titling on the end of a film, it says, to be continued, that's a Star Wars-ish sort of vibe, isn't it? You know, to be continued. Like, if you're watching one of those terrible Netflix kind of rolling series that have no end, like Lost. I think that was actually one, wasn't it? Was it 19 series of the same people on an island? Still no one knows what was going on. You know, there's this constant sense of it's to be continued. But the whole point is that this is not the whole story. And when Jesus says, when the text says Jesus continued, it says actually this teaching is part of something bigger than just this single story. In the world of psychology, they say the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And what appears to be if you like the start of some unique soul teaching is actually the continuation of something that Jesus has been saying all along this is the predictor this is the future behavior this is this is what God is saying is happening and it's not a new message it's a message that Jesus has been continuing it's the reinforcement of something significant The parable of the good shepherd says, does he not leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? The parable of the good woman says, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And the parable of the running father says, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. You see, when it says Jesus continued, is pointing out the fact that the parable of the prodigal son as we know it is not a piece of standalone teaching at all. It's the reinforcement of two previous pieces of specific teaching about the nature of what God does. And that's set in the context of an even bigger message about what God does. And in scripture, a repetition of something three times is known as a, a super superlative or an emphatic Semitic triplet. What that basically means is, here's something absolutely significant. If I repeat something three times, it breaks a bond or it makes a very, very plain statement. So when it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that triplet, that super superlative, it is a statement of, his, of absolute Godness. Sadly, these, the use of three was also a way of breaking bonds. So it was possible to divorce by saying simply, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. It was to to break a bond was the statement of the emphatic Semitic triplet. And so Jesus here is trying to reinforce a message three times in three different ways to express a super superlative about the nature of God. And the mistake we can make here is to believe that Jesus was teaching against some sort of neutral backdrop. That the parable of the prodigal son, and what we now know as the parable of the running father, was offered to a group of people who were really interested in his teaching and had never heard anything about God before. So, So when you think about the nature of Jesus and his teaching, because we're all so wowed by Jesus, and rightly so, we would think if Jesus said something, we'd be like, right, okay, I'm receiving that, because Jesus has just said that. if Jesus was sitting in the corner right now and I said hey everyone Jesus is just over there so everyone give him a wave but I'm going to carry on preaching you might be like um how is it going to be awkward if we tell Will to like you know does he mind just like getting down to sit down and maybe we could get Jesus up instead seeing as he's here seems like an opportune moment to invite Jesus onto the pulpit Will well you know what do you say okay guys I feel the pressure I'm gonna get down I'm gonna ask Jesus because we we're so keen for Jesus teaching but Jesus wasn't just teaching in some sort of neutral backdrop where everyone was going oh yeah great Jesus is here amazing I want to hear what Jesus has to say Jesus is the son of God I want to receive what he's going to say to me tonight he was preaching to a hostile backdrop with a whole load of people, all these Pharisees and Sadducees, teachers of the law, who knew absolutely what they believed they knew about God. Jesus wasn't preaching to a neutral backdrop. He was preaching to a hostile crowd. Jesus was not imparting information to people who had no an opinion about the nature of God. Jesus was offering a corrective to people who already believed that they knew about the nature of God. You know, it's like bending the business card. Like if I bend the business card a little bit and I let go, it goes straight, like nothing's changed. But if I want to create change, I've really got to bend the business card. I've got to like add pressure. I've got to keep on going in order that something changes. And so Jesus preaches three different messages to the hostile crowd to try and help them to understand something significant about the nature of God, which they had not understood. But they weren't neutral and they weren't keen. They were hostile. These three teachings are a corrective, not an instructive. <laughs> you know, ironically, we've made them an instructive don't wander off, don't get lost, don't sin. That's it. Oh, yeah, the parable of the lost son, the sheep, you know, the, the, the coin, just don't get lost. But that is not what Jesus was actually teaching. All these people knew not to get lost. They were, you know, they were following the law, which said, don't get lost. Was, that was not a revolutionary message. The revolutionary message here is actually that God is coming for you. God is coming for you. God is coming for you. The transformation here is the fact that God was actually going to come after you. That he actually cares about your life. That he actually wants to find you and he wants you to find him. Because everything about temple worship had been about you coming in as someone who was lost, offering sacrifices to make yourself righteous in order that God would notice you. And ultimately, probably God was kind of hostile, maybe indifferent towards you, but certainly needed a lot of geeing up to kind of notice you in the crowd. But this was completely different this was this idea that actually you were lost to God and yet God came searching for you you were a lost sheep there's loads of great sheep the sheep are doing great they're on the hillside but there's another sheep but why would God bother well God will bother and he's going to go after the sheep or there's a coin but there's loads of other coins so why bother with this coin well that's just the nature of what God is like he's going to go after that coin he's going to find that coin and he's going to celebrate when he finds that coin or this son who's beyond rude and gets completely lost and then I'm gonna go after that son and I'm gonna find a way to get that son back to me because God is coming after you. Like Jesus' teaching here is something that he continues flying into the face of a culture that said, God doesn't care about me. Jesus is saying, God is coming after you. I feel like the world around us believes that God is generally indifferent Probably hostile, generally legalistic, pretty guilt laden, shameworthy, probably best avoided. I mean, being a Christian is perceived to be this little dance that we do every week in order to make God notice us. Here I am. Look, I'm happy. Look, I'm worshipping. I put my five pence in the slot, turn the dial. Hopefully, God will smile. Jesus is saying that religious stuff is not necessary. You you need to know God is coming after you with a passion, with a love, with a hunger. And when he finds you, there's going to be a great celebration. Everything that we do here is an outflow of a God who loves us. It's not an attempt to win God's love. Jesus continued teaching into the wind trying to change public opinion about the nature of god my second point tonight and my final point you'll be glad, glad to know is around what i call the culture of the house i don't know if you're similar but when i walk into a house i get, i get a kind of vibe um I I was looking a bit nervous if I've been around your house. <laughs> There's a score chart I'm just about to reveal. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the tidiness of your house. Sometimes, sometimes you go to some quite untidy people's houses, you know who you are. And I love the vibe. There's a great feeling, a warmth, often, in those houses. There's something special going on. I've been to some incredibly tidy houses, and some of you are here too. You know who you are, worried that I'm going to criticise you for being too tidy but there's a great vibe, there's a great warmth. Equally, I've been to houses where there's untidiness, but there's also a discomfort in my spirit. Maybe a hostility or maybe there's a a coldness or something lacking in the environment, something that that makes me feel a bit bit of disease. Sometimes in in the cleanest of houses, I feel the similar thing, kind of coldness or, or something, a lack of unity. I can't tell you what it is, it's more than the decor, but I get a feeling around the culture of the house everything we do here as a team we are constantly thinking about the culture of God's house what culture are we creating a safe culture I hope a culture of inclusivity, of diversity a culture of welcome a culture of love and acceptance a culture of transformation and challenge we're always thinking about the culture of the house but if we have a egocentric or prodigal centric reading of this parable I wonder what we think of the father's house I feel like it really skews the reading imagine I throw a headline out there boy runs away from home what are you thinking I can tell you what I'm thinking I'm thinking control neglect maybe even abuse kind of why is he running away from home if it's that good like why would he go what's the reason? must have been problems at home like boys just don't run away from homes that are happy you see when we think about the house we know more about it than we think we know we we actually find out that the house was you know was was remarkable the house was something special the house was a house on a hill because the father could see the son whilst he was still a long way off. The house was a unique farmstead which had goats and cows which were extremely precious in the first century so we know it was a wealthy farm and we know that the father hired lots of hired men therefore the farm was obviously functioning very well. There was an inheritance to be had. So we know a little about that specific house but what do we know about the culture of that house? Well, what we know about the culture of that house is something remarkable, something radical. Because in verse 12, we learn about the culture of this house where it says, the younger one said to the father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So often we skip over that as if it's just a sort of traditional conversation about inheritance between adult Western children and their very, very kind of sedentary parents. Can we have that important chat, please, about, you know, the future? Have you sorted stuff out? You know, is the care home booked kind of vibe? Uncomfortable conversations, but conversations that happen here, hopefully without too much offense. For a Middle Eastern audience, this was the most shocking element of the story as a whole yet it passes us by. For a son to ask his father for his inheritance while that parent was still living was akin to wishing them dead. It was the ultimate shame. And Jesus preaching into the wind would have created an incredible reaction from his audience. Literally, Jesus saying, and the son asked the father for his inheritance. There would have been shouts from the crowd potentially sandals would have been coming off feet thrown at Jesus probably thrown in the dust as people threw up their hands in horror this was like the most extreme like social offense that you could cause in an honor culture for the child to say to the parent I want my inheritance now was saying I want you dead and 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 this expression would have created gasps from the crowd It's further compounded by the fact that the younger brother is the one who's asking for the inheritance, another thing that often passes us by. The reality is, of course, that the younger brother had no part of the inheritance, since it was only the older brother who would receive an inheritance by death. The younger brother would actually have been slave to the older brother, And so the younger brother who doesn't and isn't entitled to any inheritance is asking the father for an inheritance over his older brother. Which is akin to also saying to his older brother, I want you dead as well. Like we wonder why the older brother was offended when the younger brother came back having spent all the money. Because the older brother was entitled to all the money that the younger brother also spent. Like, it's a radical statement of offence. So not only are all of the older men in the crowd shouting and chucking their sandals on the floor, but probably all of the older brothers in the group are also throwing their sandals on the floor. And you know what the natural outworking would be for a child who said that to a parent? It would have been stoning. Severe beating at the very least, and certainly being cast out from the family. Like, this was a an offense worthy of death and yet Jesus is sharing it like oh yeah here we go so the father split the inheritance you know it's so hard for me to express to you how radical and how provocative this statement would have been for the audience who are receiving it this incredible dishonor and yet if you look at the text there is no reprimand not even a debate around the request. Don't you find that remarkable? What would you say about the culture of the house? Because Jesus is trying to juxtapose the nature of God's kingdom to the assumptions made in the world in his time. And yet for us, oh, well, that's, you know, there's nothing to get too excited about. Like no one's going to get stoned. Not in that way Anyway you know let's all just chill out and kind of you know we'll get over this and everything will be fine no this creates incredible offense and Jesus is trying to make the point this is how God loves with this generous overwhelming love how do you feel about the culture of his house now Open, generous, compassionate, fair, sacrificial, unconventional, surprising even. Jesus is wanting his first century audience to question their assumptions about the nature of God and even the exclusivity of temple worship. He's preparing the ground for other sons and daughters to come into the Father's house. He's preparing the ground for a generous kingdom of welcome He's preparing the ground that people might experience and understand how much the Father is chasing them down from every tribe and tongue. He's wanting us to respond to this incredible awakening about the nature of the Father's house. And he's calling us to be representatives of this house too, to fly in the face of a culture that says, yeah, going to church, kind of hostile. Guilt-laden, shame-worthy. Isn't that where they tell you off for all the stuff you've done wrong? Show them this passage. Show them what it means—the parable of the running father. A house that's cultures welcome, that's cultures to receive an inheritance that you weren't even in line to receive. What assumptions are you carrying about the culture of God's house today, and what might you need to leave at the door? To have a different view? And what assumptions have you made about the purpose of the parable? And what needs to shift for it to become a corrective rather than an instructive in your life today? You know, these are just two verses. Jesus continued, one phrase. And yet it fundamentally transforms our understanding that God's not talking about us not getting lost. He's talking about him being the one who wants to seek and save that is lost. He wants to chase after you to find you. And this cultural house, not one of hostility, not one of stonings and not one of honor and dishonor, one of welcome. One when you receive what you're not even entitled to. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. Why don't we stand as we respond? Just invite you to open your hands and take the opportunity just to wait for a moment on the the Lord. Maybe you'd like to close your eyes as a, just to let all the distractions just flow away for a moment. So often in these moments, we start saying things like, Oh, God, you know, I've got so many things I need from you, and I've got this, that, and the other. I need you to sort out, or even, God, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, I want to come back to you. But what if God was just saying to you right now, I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. Just let it resonate with your heart for a moment. God is coming after you, he's coming after your life, he's coming after your future, he's coming after all the possibilities, he's coming after you and all the challenges, he's coming after you and he's unrelenting in his pursuit.